Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today I'm joined by Dr. Lyle Birma. Lyle is, a, is the Zondervan Professor of the History of Christianity at Calvin Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and he's just authored a new book with Oxford University Press, published in 2021 as part of the Oxford Studies and Historical Theology series, and the book is called Font of Pardon in New Life. John Calvin and the Efficacy of Baptism. Lyle, congratulations on the book, and thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thank you very much. Great to be here. Yeah, well, it's great to have you here, and and it was a real pleasure to read this this really excellent book that you've written on on the historical development of of Calvin on baptism, Uh, and I'm looking forward to hearing more more from you about it. Uh, But before we do that, can you share with us a little more about your background and things you've written in the past? Yeah, I was uh, born and raised in West Michigan here in the Grand Rapids area, uh, except for a number of years that I spent in West Africa as part of a missionary family uh, in the country of Nigeria. But I did my uh, undergraduate education at Calvin College here in Grand Rapids, now Calvin University and then went on to Calvin Theological Seminary for theological training, where I now teach. Uh, And then after graduating from Calvin, I went on for doctoral work to Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, where I worked in the area of Reformation studies with uh, Professor David Steinmetz. Once I graduated from Duke, I came back to the Grand Rapids area and taught for a couple of decades in a small undergraduate institution called Kuiper College, where I taught theology and church history. And then 20 some years ago, I moved over here to Calvin Theological Seminary, where I've been teaching history of Christianity ever since. Uh, As far as my research interests and writings go, I am worked particularly in three areas over my career, uh, beginning in the area of early Reformed covenant theology. Uh, I did uh, my dissertation and later revised it into a book on the covenant theology of Caspar Olivianus, one of the Heidelberg theologians of the 16th century. Then I moved uh, after some time into the area of the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, did a number of articles and several books on that uh, topic, And then more recently, I've been working on Calvin, and particularly Calvin's doctrine of baptism, as we see in this book that we're talking about today. Very good. Well, yeah, as we look to this most recent book, um, tell us, if you can, about how how you're approaching it in in terms of how you're engaging Calvin's, uh, his various writings, how you're charting his life. Take us into your methodology, if you can. Yeah, maybe the easiest way to do that would be to explain how the book actually began. Sure. Uh, and then we can move from that into the methodology. It actually began a, a number of decades ago. I happened to be reading one day uh, Calvin's Genevan Catechism of 1545. And near the end, 
uh, in the section on baptism, I came across this question. It's question and answer 328 of the Genevan Catechism. The minister asks, but do you attribute nothing more to the water of baptism than that it is only a symbol of washing? And then the child responds, I think it to be such a symbol that reality is at the same time attached to it. For God does not disappoint us when he promises us his gifts. Hence, it is certain that pardon of sins and newness of life are offered to us and received by us in baptism. You can already tell maybe where the title of the book came from. Uh, it's certain that pardon of sins and newness of life, font of pardon and new life, are offered to us and received by us in baptism. I was floored when I read that. I said, what? This is Calvin talking? <laughs> it sounds really more like a, a Roman Catholic uh, view of baptism than a Protestant one, and certainly a Reformed one. It's not a, an understanding of baptism that I had grown up with in the Reformed tradition of which I'm a part. So I began reading further in Calvin, uh, just kind of informally, and I kept coming across other similar statements in a variety of, a variety of his writings over time and um, became more and more interested in pursuing what was going on here. But I had other projects going on. I, I decided to put it on the back burner and return to it later. So finally, several years ago, when I began this book project, I did get back to it, and I began doing some research on Calvin and baptism. We have here at Calvin Seminary and Calvin University, the Meter Center for Calvin Studies, which has everything ever written by and about Calvin. So it was a wonderful place to do the work. And I found out nobody had ever written a book on Calvin's doctrine of baptism, a full book. Uh, there was one doctoral dissertation that someone had written one but once, but only parts of it had actually been published. Uh, there were parts of books that people had written. There were articles, certainly many of them, on Calvin's Doctrine of no, no full-length monograph on this topic. Uh, furthermore, as I was reading in the secondary literature on Calvin and baptism, I, was, I found out that there was not a lot of agreement on how to understand Calvin's Doctrine of Baptism either. There were different schools of thought when it came to that particular subject. So I said, there's definitely a need for uh, a book here. So what I ended up doing, and this gets to your question then more on approach and methodology, what I ended up doing was looking at all of Calvin's writings where he deals with baptism in some way. And this is across the whole spectrum of his writings uh, the Institutes, his commentaries, sermons, polemical treatises, catechisms, other specialized treatises, and so forth, looking over all of those, and then chronologically examining the development of his doctrine of baptism over his entire lifetime. So nobody had ever done that before, look at all of his writings over his entire life in chronological order. Um, so my approach was was really chronological then, I guess you could say. Um, and I did that uh, largely because I was inspired to do so by some earlier works that people have done on Calvin's doctrine of the Lord's Supper, the other major sacrament in the Protestant tradition. Uh, 
they had done uh, taken a developmental approach to Calvin's doctrine of the Eucharist for the first time, really, in the secondary literature. I'm thinking of Tom Davis here in the 1990s, and then a Dutch scholar, Wim Janse, in the early 2000s. They had uh, both done this in longer works, but had only looked at the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. But they said, really, to understand Calvin, we have to look at his entire career and trace it chronologically. And what they found was that Calvin's position on the Lord's Supper is changing over time, depending on the circumstances in which he was working. So that got me interested then in approaching baptism in the same way. Let's see once if that's true also of Calvin's doctrine of baptism. So that's kind of a, a, a general idea of how I came at the topic. Yeah, great. That's really helpful. Well, you know, if we started out here just really broadly and and took a look at Calvin's doctrine of baptism, one of the biggest questions that comes up uh, is whether or not Calvin intended to teach a kind of baptismal regeneration. Uh, how does your book address this question? Yeah, I guess I guess if I were to answer that question as he would have answered it, I would say um, both no and yes. Does Calvin teach a doctrine of baptismal regeneration? No and yes. So I guess that takes a little bit of explaining. Um, first of all, I would say... Uh, for Calvin, it would be a no. I mean, one of the things he's trying really hard to do with his doctrine of baptism is to say baptism itself does not save. And he's pushing back, especially earlier in his career, against the Roman Catholic tradition here. Baptism is not itself salvational or regenerational. Uh, baptism doesn't have an inherent power. The water of baptism or the act of baptism doesn't have some kind of power inherent within it by which the person who is being baptized is transformed. So in that sense, it, it, it's not baptismally regenerational, you could say, this sacrament. Um, however, having said that, there is a sense, I, wish, I, I guess, in which you could say that he does regard baptism as regenerational, as actually... Uh, giving us forgiveness of sins and new life, as it says in that question and answer I read from the Genevan Catechism. And, and that is, uh, he, even though baptism itself doesn't have that power, it is still an instrument in the hands of God to which God attaches these benefits of salvation. Because what we encounter in baptism, as in the Lord's Supper is Christ himself. And when we encounter Christ, we encounter his benefits as well, including the benefits of forgiveness and new life. So those benefits for Calvin are actually attached in some mysterious way to the elements and the actions of baptism in such a way that when we, in the right circumstances, in the right meeting the right conditions, when we are baptized, we actually then are we do encounter and receive the benefits of forgiveness and new life. But those conditions are what are crucial here. It doesn't happen by itself. It's not ex opera operato, as the Catholic tradition had taught. Very good. Well, it would probably make sense to then follow up that topic with a question that's kind of closely related to, to instruments of grace. And, and that's how is Calvin's understanding uh, 
or, or how is he understanding rather the, the relationship between baptism and the roles of, of say the word, the role of faith. Um, if, if baptism does communicate in some sense, uh, grace in some way, what, what of these other instruments of grace, or, or in other words, what is the relationship between baptism and the spirit working through the word, bringing sinners to faith? Yeah, and that's that's where we get into those kinds of conditions or circumstances that are crucial for him in order for baptism to function in the way that I just described. Um, as I just said, he's pushing back pretty hard against the Catholic tradition, especially early on his, in his career and wants to argue baptism is not an instrument of grace in the sense that it itself has the power to save or it itself performs the salvational act. Um, It's an instrument in the hands of God, but it is effective as that instrument only when it is connected to several other things. And you mentioned some of those just a moment ago. First of all, the word of God. Baptism is very closely tied to the word for Calvin. The word has to be preached. The word has to be spoken. The word has to be included in the sacrament. Um, The promises of the word uh, are what the person being baptized are confronted with at baptism as well. And Calvin is really operating here with the old Christian idea. Augustine expressed it Uh, in very simple terms as the sacraments being the visible word or the word made visible words, uh, the word of God that we encounter with more than just our sense of of hearing. So it's really the, the promises of the gospel, forgiveness and new life through Jesus Christ um, made manifest here in the sacrament of baptism in the same way that that they are in the Lord's Supper, the same way they are in the preaching of the word. So the word is very closely connected to sacrament. If sacrament is done without this connection with word, it cannot be effective. And that's a a fairly general Protestant emphasis, I think, uh, from the time of the Reformation. And then second, I've said these are instruments. uh, It's an instrument in the hands of God. And Calvin mentions particularly the Holy Spirit. Calvin has a strong pneumatology operating here. But particularly in the hands of the Holy Spirit, when we say God uses us as an instrument, it is the Holy Spirit who is actually at work here um, in bringing about this communication or conveyance of baptismal grace. Election, uh, this happens for Calvin only when uh, in, in those who have been chosen by God for salvation, the elect from his point of view, whether we're talking about adults or infants, it's only the elect that actually are the beneficiaries of this sacrament. It's possible for someone to be baptized and not receive these benefits at all if that person is not really one of God's chosen. Uh, And then um, finally, faith operates is an important dimension of this. And again, I think this is where he's pushing back against the Catholic tradition. But as with all the Protestant reformers, really emphasize the importance of true and living faith on the part of the person being baptized. Um, If this is to be an effective instrument in the conveyance of the divine blessings that we've talked about. So all of those must be must be present there as well. It's not an automatic or a mechanical kind of action. It can only happen in the context of those other things we've just been talking about. Very good. 
Well, well, carrying forward, as we think about the spiritual blessings of baptism, you devote a good deal of attention to the question of, of the efficacy of infant baptism for Calvin. Who, who for Calvin are the spiritual blessings of baptism for? Are they conferred only in believers or infants too? Yeah, that's kind of an interesting uh, question. And um, it's, it's one that's created a lot of the secondary literature uh, on Calvin's doctrine of baptism. People are always probably most interested in his doctrine of infant baptism um, because of the disagreements about believers' baptism, infant baptism within the broader Christian community, largely. Those have sent people back to Calvin and see how he's understood these doctrines. Um, one of the things that that struck me as I studied this topic was how careful Calvin is, and you find this, I think, in, in some of the other theologians, in the certainly in the Reformed tradition early on, too, is that for them, baptism is baptism. It's not adult baptism and baby baptism or or believer's baptism and infant baptism. Baptism is baptism. It's one doctrine. And some people have argued that Calvin really treats them almost as if they're two different kinds of doctrines, and that some have even argued that they're inconsistent with each other. But uh, I did not find that to be the case. Baptism is for everyone, for adults and uh, infants alike within the church community, the covenant community, and the blessings of baptism are conveyed equally upon uh, adults and infants. Calvin actually, interestingly, starts out all of his discussions of baptism, and I think this is because he's such a careful biblical scholar, he's, he starts them all out with an attention to baptism as we encounter it in the Bible, in the New Testament. So all of the New Testament baptisms, named baptisms in the New Testament, are of believers, are of adult converts. So he really starts talking about what we would probably call more believers' baptism or adult baptism. He spends a lot of his time in his introduction to baptism just looking at that, and that's where he mentions the importance of faith and everything. And it's always at the end of that discussion that he finally gets to infants. And um, so it's sort of a, uh, an add-on question. He said, okay, now that we've talked about baptism as we encounter it in scripture, does this apply, to, does this apply to, to infants as well? And then goes on and discusses that. But um, the, the short answer to your question then, are they conferred only in believers or infants? It's really blessings to both. Um, they're a bit different. Uh, there's a bit of a difference here when it comes to infants because the obvious objection is that an infant doesn't come to baptism with faith. And so Calvin has to really wrestle with that. If it's, if it's to be consistent here that, that baptism or the blessings of baptism are received in connection with the faith of the person being baptized, then he has to deal with that question. And he's getting pushed on this, particularly by the Anabaptists of his day. Well, what about the fact that little babies don't believe? Well, he starts out, first of all, early in his career by arguing more that uh, along with Luther, and I think he got this from Luther, that infants do have a modicum of faith, at least, infant faith, which is a doctrine um, Luther had promoted as well. So Calvin starts out with that. They do have faith appropriate to their own age. Later, he backs off from that a bit, and then he talks more in terms of maybe the what he calls the seeds of faith and repentance that are 
that are plant that an infant have has uh, that are planted uh, in baptism, seeds of faith and repentance and reception of the seeds of regeneration or something like that. But but he really operates then with what you might call kind of a, a delayed efficacy of baptism, where the seeds might be planted early on in baptism. And so it's a very valid baptism, but these seeds don't come to expression or fruition in elect infants until later on in life as they grow older and the faith uh, matures in those in those kids. So, I mean, there's a little bit, a little bit different timeline that he operates with here, but he still sees all the same essential aspects, components of baptism operating, I think, in infant baptism as in adult baptism. He's really, I think, quite consistent there. Yeah, I think you give a really clear picture of how Calvin's thinking there. And, you know, on the whole, uh, maybe his thinking uh, was not all too static, or at least in, in the view of some scholars who suggest that he has quite a change in his thinking, especially on the issue of baptism. And your, your book is a study on the development of, of his understanding. So how are you viewing Calvin's uh, change in thinking? Do, do you take the same line as other Calvin scholars on, on this topic, or are you envisioning more, more consistency in his, in his thought over time? Yeah, I guess I fall somewhere in the middle. Uh, let me get to the end of the book. I'm, I end up somewhere in the middle between those, many of those in the past who kind of see Calvin's thought as um, uniform, static, uh, unchanged throughout his entire lifetime, kind of just frozen in time and always the same. And those scholars on the other side, um, more recently, the developmentalist scholars who've argued actually for some very significant changes in Calvin's doctrine of baptism. Um, no one has written any books on that, but uh, in the articles that have been written on it, people like Vim Yansa, who also saw a significant change in his doctrine of the Lord's Supper, they see Calvin as making some really sharp turns in one direction or the other when it comes to his doctrine of baptism as it develops over his lifetime. So I guess I'm somewhere in the middle there. I actually see both development and consistency, both change and a certain sameness to the doctrine over his lifetime. So I, let me just ex explain that a little bit. Um, when it comes to change and development, and here I, I appreciate what these earlier scholars have done in pointing, pointing out that Calvin uh, doesn't um, express things exactly the same way through his entire lifetime. He's dealing with different kinds of opponents in his theological discussions. So he's going to emphasize certain things more strongly at one point than at others. But um, one, of the, one of the changes that I did notice is that when it came to how he understands baptism as an instrument, and there are really two ways that he understands baptismal instrumentality. He sees baptism as an instrument of knowledge and assurance of the person being baptized, which I call the more subjective view of instrumentality. And he sees baptism as an instrument of grace, where something is actually conveyed to the person being baptized, a gift from God to them, which I call maybe the more objective view of, of instrumentality. And there is change and development in which of those two he's emphasizing at a particular point in his lifetime. He always talks about both. But earlier on in his career, he talked more about baptism in that subjective sense of an instrument of 
of assurance and knowledge. And then he moves to a, a greater emphasis, more in the middle part of his life, probably to baptism as an instrument of grace. And then by the time you get to the end of his life, he has those two in, in uh, a pretty good balance, I would say. So there is, there is change in development when it comes to that. Also, um, he does, over the course of his lifetime, certainly when it comes to baptism as an instrument of grace, this more objective sense, he does clarify, refine, expand upon his understanding of how baptism actually is an instrument of grace. And there it has to do with this mysterious question of how exactly is the outer sign related to the thing that is being signified or to the, the grace that is being communicated. And at first he just, he just implies that there's some kind of a connection. But by the end of his life, he's very explicit in using verbs of connection between the sign and the signified and an, an adjoining of the sign and the signified in some way and so forth. So he, he certainly expands upon that over his lifetime. But I guess my basic thesis, and here is where I'm responding to some of those developmentalists, is that essentially um, Calvin is pretty consistent in the way he approaches the doctrine of baptism over his lifetime. Um, he's throughout his entire lifetime always trying to find the middle road between the sacramental realism of the Roman Catholic tradition and the sacramental symbolism of the Zwinglian and Anabaptist tradition. And so he's trying to walk a middle path between these two, and he's always doing that really throughout his entire lifetime. And so that while there is some growth, some development, um, some greater clarification and so on. He overall the trajectory uh, of his doctrine of baptism, I think, is one of of refinement of basic elements of that doctrine of baptism that are present already in the very beginning in the 1536 Institutes. Yeah, I really appreciate your answer there and and this conclusion there that you make in the book about him refining themes found early in his writings, not not necessarily diverging from them. Well, as we think of Calvin understanding baptism, both, you know, both as assurance and grace means of, uh, means of assurance and grace, how has Calvin been received by and, and within the confessional tradition? What, what impact did his thinking on baptism have there? Yeah. And I guess you could really think about that maybe in two ways. First of all, what was the immediate impact in the formation of the great national Reformed confessions of the 16th and 17th centuries, where re the Reformed theology of the Reformation was codified in these confessional forms. And then I guess, you know, you could also ask the question more broadly, what practical impact has it had in the thinking of people in the Reformed confessional community all the way up to the present? And I guess we could talk a lot about both of those. Um, let me say just a little bit about the former and then a little bit about the latter. Um, it's interesting. This to me was kind of the last chapter of the book because it's the last chapter of the story. When I look it, in that final chapter before the conclusion at the impact on the Reformed confessions. And what I was interested in is, is how much of this way of thinking about baptism 
actually came down to the Reformed tradition through its important confessional documents. So I ended up looking at eight of these major national confessions and catechisms of the 16th, 17th centuries uh, in order to, to determine that. So what I looked at was the, uh, the French Confession of Faith, the Gallican Confession, that is, uh, the Scots Confession, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Second Helvetic Confession, the 39 Articles, and then the Westminster Standards, uh, not the Westminster Shorter Catechism, but the Westminster Confession and the Westminster Larger Catechism. And what I found out there um, was kind of interesting. First of all, I guess it had Calvin's view had more of an impact on that confessional tradition than I had anticipated. Uh, you actually find um, through actual personal historical connections or through literary connections, you find Calvin's influence, I think, moving particularly in, into six of those eight documents. And those six are the documents that came out of the French Reformed and out of the English Reformed traditions. So in the French Reform, we talk about the Gallican Confession, the French Confession, and the Belgic Confession. And Calvin actually, you know, had some, he played some part in the composition of those confessions uh, and had some pretty direct contacts with their authors and that kind of thing. So that's understandable when it comes to the French-speaking confessions there. And he, he came out of that community, and he was in close contact with that community through his entire lifetime. In the English documents, the 39 Articles and the Westminster Standards, his influence is more indirect, but I think it is still there. Um, where he doesn't have or where you don't find this kind of teaching on baptism is in the Heidelberg Catechism and the Second Helvetic Confession, both of which are from the German-speaking world, but for different reasons, I think, um, don't go all the way with Calvin in this view of baptismal instrumentality. And I won't take the time to go into those reasons now. That's um, all in the book. Um, so actually, there is a stronger influence there than what I anticipated. And that gets me into the second um, way of approaching this question about the, the longer impact of this doctrine. I, I think it has um, not had as much of an impact the, the longer we've gone in through history and the Reformed tradition, at least the, the part of the Reformed tradition that I'm most familiar with, which is in a North American context here. Now, I can't speak for other parts of the world, but at least for a North American context. Where I think in Reformed uh, denominations today, we operate, many of us oftentimes, with a much more Zwinglian view of the sacraments, a much more symbolic view of the, the sacraments than what Calvin was actually teaching. And so that's maybe why I was surprised when I went back to those confessions to find how much of his view actually did survive in those confessions. Um, I don't think we're always as faithful then to that confessional tradition, if we're trying to be, um, as, uh, as probably we should be, um, at least in the way that that's reflected in our perceptions of baptism today. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to see the inclusion of this uh, in the book for, for how readers can think about Calvin's ideas sort of expanding into those 16th and 17th century reformed context. Um, and, and again, I think this book is a great achievement. As you said, the first book length treatment of Calvin on baptism. Uh, and I'm sure our listeners are, are thankful to hear more about the book from you. Uh, but Lyle, before we wrap up, uh, 
why don't you tell us uh, what writing projects you're working on next? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I'm getting to the point where I'm slowing down a bit because I have only one more year of teaching then I'm going to retire. So I, I probably won't be as um, productive as in the world of research and writing anymore. But um, what I'm currently working on, and this is something I've done over the course of my career too, and that is uh, translation work. I really enjoy translating primary texts from the Reformation. Uh, I've done some in one in German, one in Latin, and so on, or from from those languages. Uh, but also, uh, I like translating secondary works, important secondary works that um, are probably will probably get a better reach if they're translated into English, particularly when it comes to Dutch works, uh, because the Netherlands is so small and there's so relatively few Dutch speakers in the world, and there's a lot of good scholarship that comes out of the Netherlands related to the Reformation. So I've done some translations in the past of Dutch books uh, into English by scholars there. I just completed one, and it will be going into production within the next month or so, uh, by a Dutch scholar, Wolfert de Kreef is his name, on um, Calvin's understanding of the relationship between Christians and Jews in the context of the late medieval period out of which he had just come. So... Um, that is going to be published by Van, Van den Hoek and Ruprecht, which has recently been taken over, as you may know, by Brill. It's one of Brill's imprints now. That'll be published in their, they have a sort of a studies in historical theology series. I think it's called Reformed Historical Theology or something like that. It'll be published, I think, in August. Uh, so I just finished that, and now I'm, I'm working on another translation of a Dutch book. I co-supervised about five years ago a dissertation at the Protestant University of the Netherlands um, on the Heidelberg Catechism's treatment of prayer. And I thought it was, well, I co-supervised it, I guess, so maybe I'm biased, but I thought it was a, a really good piece of work that this uh, person did. He's a, a pastor in the Netherlands, and I thought it really deserves uh, translated English. So I've just started that now, and that's going to take you know a year or two because it's a long book before that sees the light of day. But that's what I'm focused on. Then I have a couple more research projects in the offing for retirement, but that's down the road a little ways yet. Very good. Well, we will look forward to some of that work. Uh, but for now, thank you for writing this book. It's called uh, Font of Pardon and New Life. It's out with Oxford University Press. And Dr. Bierma, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking with you. And thank you all for listening. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network.